This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. It's uh, been a week since we last recorded. It's been a week in which Albion have played two games, drawn both of them 1-1, yet that is really not the story for Albion this week. Uh, A tumultuous end, a very, very um, controversial end to the transfer window for Albion. Controversy, trying to work out exactly what happened, not being told an awful lot by the club either. All these things are leading to a lot of fan discontent. But in amongst it all, Bruce's boys haven't necessarily performed that badly. Wigan was not great. Nobody pretends otherwise. Yet we still came away with a point in a game where we were probably marginally the better side, largely because we were the only side who actually tried to win the game. And then against Burnley, we were comfortably the better side, as was reflected not only by the things that our own players and manager said, but also Vincent Company, who openly admitted that it would have been an absolute smash and grab if they'd gone away with a 1-0 win. They came within about 60 seconds of doing that. Thank you very much, Brandon Thomas Asante. Um, But, Pete, I think, once again, it goes to show that there are teams that we can play well against and there's teams that we can't. And those that sit in against us, we really, really struggle against. And those that come and play... I think we can go toe to toe with just about anyone. I mean, we'll come to uh, come to the bigger picture around what's happened, and we're going to spend a lot of this pod talking about the bigger picture of what ha- has happened over the last week and around the transfer window and the mess behind the scenes at the Albion. But in terms of the way we're playing, I think the problem is fundamentally our style suits itself to teams that come and play against us, and we can go toe to toe with anybody who does. But we haven't got. I'm, I'm going to avoid, I want to avoid using the words plan B because they've annoyed me for the last sort of like year to 18 months. 
but we haven't we haven't got enough ways to change and tweak things simply because we haven't got enough options in the squad to do that and and when we come up against a park the bus team which is very much what we came up against against Wigan and it's not for the first time this season Cardiff at home was exactly the same sort of a game we don't have a way through these teams do we and yet we go toe to toe with the better teams in the division who come and play us and they go away looking second best to us yeah you summed up pretty well there um when you look at the Burnley performance I thought we were very good I think we could have been better even there was a few times when we won the ball quite high up off them but we we struggled to make it count really there was one way Grant had a shot where Grady might have been open and, and then there was another one where someone got tackled or where there was an option to pass. So I think we could have been a bit more ruthless in our decision-making when we did win the ball back high and we would have have even more chances. I mean, we had enough already to, to have scored a couple of goals at least. So definitely not a bad performance. I think there's definitely still room for improvements there. Um, but they are the games that we seem to be doing better in when teams are actually coming out to play against us and we can... We can press high, win the ball back, and then there's actually space to to attack into when we have won the ball back. Um, whereas against um, teams that set up similar to Wigan, we struggle to break down that low block. Yeah, we we seem like you say we seem to not have a, a plan B. Um, you went there. I, <laughs> I, I, I could I could almost hear the cogs turning as you tried to find another way of saying it. Yeah, I was trying to avoid it for you, but <laughs> we didn't have a second option. Uh, there we go. That's better. I mean, whether that's going to be a, a number 10 or a, or a target man to hit with Wallace's but, crosses. But all joking all. aside, it's so hard to have another way of playing when you have, what are we talking We're, at the moment, 15 fit outfield players? Because I'm not counting Martin Kelly as fit at the moment. I think it's about 15, isn't it? Um, yeah, because we've, we, 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 and that's counting Furlong, who, who wasn't fit for the game on Friday night, uh, you know, you've got to write now a Jai off for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think you, you you are genuinely talking 15 senior outfield players fit, who are fit. And even Zahor made the bench on... Um... Yeah, and I'm not counting him, by the way, because he's not a footballer. Yeah, well, I was, I was just shocked to see his name on the team sheet. Um, I was shocked but... to see him warm up against Wigan. The guy ran, well, trotted down the touchline. I didn't even realise he was in it for Wigan as well. Um, but, you know, he's... I'm surprised that Cleary isn't pushing ahead of him to to make that squad. But I suppose... yeah, we're not going to have a go at Bruce here because, generally speaking, I think, uh, and much as a lot of Albion fans have said this uh, this week that um, that we think Bruce is doing a really really good job in difficult circumstances. And I think most people, are, even those who who didn't believe that a week ago, are starting to cotton on to that. So this is not in any way, shape or form, going to be an anti-Bruce thing. But I, the one thing I do question is, what kind of a message is he sending to Reyes Cleary by putting Zahor on the bench ahead of him? See, I thought after we signed that new deal, I thought we'd see him involved quite a bit off the bench because we've got him on, what, a two-year deal. And you'd think that we're either going to look to cash in on him come the end of the season. Well, otherwise we'll most likely lose him for free the year after that. So you think you kind of need to get him in the team. And give him a platform to to improve and show what he can do, and actually get him in the in the view of other clubs that might be looking to to pick him up at the end of the season. But doesn't seem to be the case yet. Maybe he's, Bruce is hoping he develops a bit more with the under twenty ones. Um, but how how much more can he actually develop with the under twenty ones, though, Pete? Because he he plays for them 
He scores every time. Every, every time I see a match report or, or, a, or a goal alert from the, from the Albion account of the 21s, it's clearly banging one in. So clearly the problem with, clearly the problem with Cleary is that there's a bridging issue here between getting from the 21s to being at a level for the first team. And I think people underestimate, by the way, how massive that gap is because we saw Ingram and Ashworth get absolutely taken to the cleaners against Derby, who were both clearly very good young players and excellent in the under-21s, but a League One, not even a League One team's first team, a League One team's second string absolutely battered the both of them. And I just wonder, without a loan or without regular bits and bobs of first team football. I don't, I I feel like Cleary has probably hit a glass ceiling in what he can learn from 21's football, hasn't he? Because he's, he's so much bigger and better than everybody else. Well, he's a brilliant goal scorer at that level. There's no doubts about that. Um, I just wonder if there's other aspects to his game that they want to develop in that lower level, lower standard of football before actually functioning the, in the senior side. I mean, we saw him in the cup games and he, he had a couple of decent chances for himself, which is, you know, what he's very good at getting. Um, but he, he didn't get involved in the game too much other than that. So maybe that's what they're trying to develop before they bring him in so that he can actually have a bigger impact. And we're, we're not playing with 10 men almost until we get into the box and then he becomes active. He's kind of a bit more involved in, in all, all the stages of play rather than just when we actually get the ball towards the, the penalty box. But, but going back to the, the original point, Pete, would playing with Ken Zahor be playing with 11 men? Well, from what we've seen him in, in his Albion career so far, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can disagree with that. I don't know. I, I, it kind of felt like Bruce, I didn't realise that he wasn't in the Wigan, that he was in the squad for the Wigan game. I thought it was just for the for the Burnley game. And it, at that point, I thought maybe Bruce is trying to, you know, kind of bring him back into the squad because he knows he's he's not... He's not got enough depth after the, the transfer window's finished because he's been, well, not had the, the financial support. And then there's obviously been a few um, few mistakes on the uh, the deadline day. One or two. One or two, yeah. Um, and we, we will come to those. But just kind of like, um, just going back to the, the Burnley thing, I thought... Um, and I've, I've tweeted this out. Anybody who hasn't had a hasn't had a, a look at it, a watch of it, a listen to it, please, I do recommend you you, you watch this because there was a there was a post match interview on Sky Sports with Jed Wallace after the game, and I mean I love Jed. Every everybody who listens to this pod knows I love Jed, and uh, uh, and it's not just about what he does on a football pitch, which is fabulous, but I, I just think he is. I, I, I do think the guy will strap the armband on at some point. He's he's captain material. And I love the way he talks about the game. It's so honest. It's so frank. It's so upfront. It's so refreshing the way he talks about football. He's He, he, he talks to fans like they're equals. And you don't get that from a, from from a lot of footballers. You get a lot of footballers get very, very defensive when they start talking to fans or to media. And I understand why, because uh, because uh, a lot of words can get twisted. A lot of uh, newspaper headlines can take quotes out of, out, out of context. 
a little bit like Bruce's words got taken out of context after the Wigan game. It wasn't the most advisable thing in the world to say that he wouldn't have paid to watch that. It was a silly thing to say during a, a, a global financial crisis. And I understand why fans took umbrage with it. But he wasn't meaning any disrespect to the people who did pay money to pay it. He, it's just, it's just a common turn of phrase in football. Like when, when commentators say, I'd pay good money to watch him. It's just a turn of phrase to say whether a game was good or bad on the eye. It's not. And, and, and I, so I understand why people can get defensive with the media, but Jed isn't, Jed just, Jed just speaks his mind. And what he said after the, after the Burnley game was that, he said, "Everything teams hit against us is going in. I'm frankly, I'm getting, I'm getting sick of it." Um, he said, "It was nice to see something drop for us in the penalty area and get uh, and and, uh, and and get a get a goal with Brandon Thomas Asante's goal." And then he went on to say um, that you know he complimented the fans for sticking with us, and he he said they didn't turn on us, which could have happened. And he's absolutely right; it could have gone, it it could have easily gone the other way. Um, I thought the fans were amazing on Friday night, and he 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 just he just said, look, you know, if we keep going like this, we'll be okay. And I tend to agree with him as long as as long as players like him and Dean Garner and Swift stay fit, because we've got nobody else in the squad. Our first eleven, Pete is not miles off. It's really not miles off. And I don't think what Bruce is doing with that squad is miles off at all. But the concern is we've picked up, we picked up one injury in the second week of this season to Daryl DK. And that's completely destroyed the way that we attack. You know, we've, we've had to muddle through with Carl and Grant as a nine since that day. And he's not a nine. And now we've lost a Jai and we've had to bring in Carl Bartley and, First of all, Bartley and O'Shea are too similar as centre-halves. We've said this since day one. We wouldn't want to see them as a partnership. We said since the first day of the season, the one you can't lose is Ajay. You could lose O'Shea. It would be a loss because he's a very good footballer, but at least Bartley is similar in the way he defends. But as soon as you lose Ajay, you lose something massive out of that team. And we all know Bartley as well. His major, major problem is he's got these moments where he just switches off and he showed that against Burnley and the ball over the top goes in behind him and Nathan Teller gets in behind and we give away the penalty. We are just so thin because, but, but it's such a frustration, isn't it Pete? Because what we've got in the starting 11, if, if everyone was fit, if you put DK in for Grant and started the rest, you know, and Ajayi was fit ahead of Bartley, there's not a lot wrong with that team. There's really not. I think that's a team that could easily make top two. But there's not a there's not a squad there that can make top six. Forget top two. There's not a squad there for the top six, and uh, and that's that's my frustration is that we've got we've got a top two eleven, but we haven't even got a top six squad. Yeah, and that's the the real problem. Um, I think DK would make a, a massive difference if he was fit. Um, I think he'd definitely be our first choice striker once he's match fit. Um, obviously, Ajay is very important as well. I don't think the Penalty was particularly Bartley's fault, to be honest. I mean, Yakuzli was about two or three yards behind the rest of the defensive line, which played, was it Nathan Teller on side? Um, I don't really know what Yakuzli was doing back there. So I think that's more on him. And to be honest, I don't think it was actually a penalty. I think Button got a touch on it before he took the man. But saying that, we probably should have had a penalty against us in the second half for O'Shea's handball. So 
See, I was I, I was right behind that um, because it, it happened at the Birmingham Road end. I uh, see. I'm the other way. I think I think the Teller one probably is a penalty, but I don't think that is because because I'm looking at that and as he's sliding, he's using his one arm to support him. And he's the other ones sort of trailing behind it. I don't see what he can do. I, I hate penalties like that because the guy chips it as the player's sliding. And naturally, one arm's going to come up because you, you're almost trying to break yourself. And like, I just, I, I, other than chop their arms off, I don't know what players are supposed to do in that situation. I saw Vinnie Company say that he thought it was probably a penalty. I don't agree. And I, and it's not just when it's against Albion. I just don't agree generally. I don't think that, uh, you know, the one with Luca Dean at Crystal Palace the other week, even though it was against a Villa player, it's not a penalty in a million years. I think it's difficult because if you're stopping the cross coming in, then you probably should be penalised for it. Um yeah, I mean, we got the law says intentional handball, Pete. I mean, whether 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 you agree with the spirit of the law or, or or not is one thing, but the wording is quite clear. Yeah, but then with the advise, advisories or whatever you want to call it that they brought in, they talk about it being out of a natural shape and having your arm up in the air probably isn't a natural position or shape or whatever. Um, yeah, but you know, it is if you're falling over. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's it's a difficult one, but obviously we're opposite opinions there. I think I I don't really know what Button was meant to like. I don't know what stops the first one being a penalty if he makes contact with the ball before he gets the man. Then to me, that's a, a fair challenge. I don't really know what what Button could have done to for it to not be a penalty. If you know what I mean. Fair play. No, I completely appreciate that. But I mean, just generally speaking, Pete, you know, it is it is so frustrating because we feel. I, I feel like we're we're so close, and I, I I hope the fans stay with the players the way they did against um, against Burnley because I as I say I thought the support was amazing against Burnley. I, the fans never wavered. I think there was a real there was a real feeling amongst the supporters that we know who the enemy is, and the and the enemy is the is the person running the club and quite possibly some of the other people running the club. And we'll, we'll come on to talk a little bit about Ron Gourlay in a bit, because I've got some very strong opinions on him um, at this moment in time. And I'm starting to think that Reading fans were absolutely Bob on the money when they spoke to us about him. But just last one about the sort of on the, on the pitch stuff. One thing that I did see an awful lot around, particularly after the Wigan game was people saying things like, I don't even know what our style of play is. We were, we had, a, whatever you thought of Val, we had a clear defined style of play. We don't have a defined style of play anymore. I don't agree with that. I, I, I feel like I know exactly what our style of play is. Our style of play is to try and move the defense around and try and create the, the pockets of space within, uh, within the opposition defense for the likes of Dean Garner, Swift, Wallace to make these late runs in there, even you at times because he got in there twice against Huddersfield and should have scored. And uh, uh, f- to get the midfielders coming in late and actually have them have them break the line and uh, and, and and score goals coming come in for pullbacks and things like that. Where it fails at the moment is when teams like Wigan literally are so disciplined, where they're 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 almost like table football defenders they just move across and across and across there it's like there's a bar through them and we we just can't get 
any space in between because they've got no interest in being shifted around. And that's where, when you get the ball wide, you need that big man in the middle to hit. And that's where our style of play falls down. But against teams that actually want to be a little bit fluid, I think we move them around really really well and we have a good plan against them. It's just we, we we haven't got that more direct option which we need against the teams that are happy to sit in deep and really don't care what we're doing in front of them. They're just not going to move. They almost ignore us. They almost ignore what football we're playing and just, and, and just stay in their shape. Yeah. Um, that's a good summary of it. Um, I think everyone knows that, that we like to cross, um, which kind of makes sense when we've got Jed Wallace and his delivery. Um, but it doesn't make sense when we don't have a, a man to hit in the box really, because, Grant's not the kind of striker you want to be crossing the ball to, but I was looking at the, the numbers behind it and we've had, I think we're third for the highest percentage of shots being headers. So 19.1% of our shots are headers. We've got by far the most crosses in the league. Before the this before the weekend's games, we'd attempted 160 crosses. Um, the average is 99 and the second highest is 126. So we've had what almost 40 crosses more than the second second highest team we're accurate with them um joint second for accuracy and 60 66 of them have been from the the right side which is kind of what makes sense because we use Wallace to cross and then we've got Diangana on the left who kind of drives inside and and looks to get into the penalty area and create chances from there through cutbacks or shots for himself or balls through to to Grant the the big problem is that we've we're putting all these crosses in, having all these shots with our heads, but we've not really got a, a striker that's excellent with the head or the winning aerials. Um, I think if we did, then we'd, we'd have scored a lot more goals already. And the that's is- that's reflected by the data, isn't it, Pete? Because I know I know people turn their nose up at this, but um, I'm, I'm sure you'll have seen this being being a man of the data as you are. That um, Infogol gave Steve Bruce the XG manager of the month. Now, I'm sure there will be people scoffing and laughing, although to be fair, I imagine that a lot of people who, if, if they sit through an hour of me and uh, me and Pete a week, probably don't have too much um, hatred for the numbers because I don't know why you'd listen to this this podcast if you despise that sort of thing. But I mean, we, we sh- according to InfoGoal, our expected points is 12.9. You know, we, sh- we should be on 13 points. At this at this moment in time, from uh, and that that's 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 from that's from eight games, you know. Obviously, that would have us in the top six. That's where that's where we should be. We should be four points better off than than what we are. Yes, with XG, there's always outliers. The bottom line is you can't say that um, the goals you should be scoring will in, automatically translate to your actual. You just need a period of time because it's all bad luck. It can just be bad finishing, which is what it is with us from for for a lot of the time. And equally, goals you're conceding when your goals against your uh, your your uh, expected goals against is much much lower than what your actual is. You can't say, well, in some time it will just change because there might be a good reason for that. You might be standing off players, you might be making ridiculous mistakes, or your goalkeeper might be really bad. But the reality is when I when I watch us, Pete, I'm not seeing loads of mistakes. I am seeing poor finishing week in, week out. For me, it's just the finishing, really. I, I think the goals against Colin will 
will come down, especially if we could get the ball to stick at the top end of the field. And I think the data basically suggests that, and I know you and I are very reticent to say that there is a silver bullet out there, but I can't help thinking that a proper physical striker just is something of a silver bullet to this team. I think there's obviously elements of bad finishing and bad luck as well. I mean, you just got to think back to the the Jed Wallace shot against Burnley, slid it under the keeper and Murich got a tiny well, touch and, on it. And Bartley's. I mean, that it it's a looped header that could so easily drop under the bar than, rather than onto it. Yeah, I mean, that's just two chances there that could have... I mean, it's it's millimetres, change of direction of the ball by millimetres, and we've got, got two goals there already. And to be fair, the one that we did score, Thomas Asante's goal was... I mean, that was a tough finish. It was behind him and he stretching for it and it wasn't an easy one. So I think we just, yeah, I think if we do have a bit more luck, then obviously we score more goals. Um, so I think there's an element of bad luck, but again, bad finishing. Dario Shea should, should have scored. His, he had a header, free header, about six yards out and heads it straight that to the keeper. That is a sitter. That is one of the worst misses of the season. Uh, he put. I, uh, I said to my dad after the game, I, uh, I, uh, I said, the thing is, most of the time you say things like, oh, if that's two inches to the right, if that's two, in-, you know. The reality of that Daro Shea header is, if he puts that anywhere other than where he puts it, he scores. Yeah, and the space and time he had to head it, it was, what, six yards out? I mean, you've got to be putting that away, really. I don't know whether it's a, a confidence thing with the players that, they feel that we're not getting the luck and it's just playing on the confidence a bit so that when they do get chances, it's it's, it's making it not more difficult, but we're just, the confidence isn't there to, to finish them because, I mean, if that had fallen to a striker that had scored three in the last five games, he would have put it away, no no problem at all, I think. Does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain degree, Pete, that players start believing the narrative of, you know, because uh, I, uh, I saw I saw BBC in their updates did a, did a tweet of is this Albion uh, uh, did a post of is this Albion forward line uh, cursed they couldn't finish a sentence tonight and it, it's almost like the players start believing that at at some point. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at with the confidence. I think if they start believing it and the confidence is low, then it it does make it makes the chances more more difficult because you know when confidence is flowing every chance just seems to be so much easier everything just seems to to hit the back of the net which you know we've we've got the opposite at the minute so that's I mean that's an issue but if we do start to score then you could see us you know overperforming the expected goals um so I think I do think it's a mixture of um of bad luck of probably creating the bad finishing but probably creating the wrong types of chances for the players that we've got if we'd got Andy Carroll in the team then just as an example, I think we'd see more of those headed shots go in because he's a very good header of the ball, which you probably can't say the same for Carlin Grant. Um, so I think that kind of comes hand in hand with the fact that the finishing has been poor, um, obviously a bit of bad luck and probably local. And if you've got well. that physical type striker as well, like an Andy Carroll type, and we'll, we're, we're going to do a list of the free agents that are available that we think Albion should be looking at in a, in a bit, but it won't shock you to know that Carroll has made both of our lists, even though the word is that 
the way he left, there's a bit of animosity there between him and Bruce, and that makes a transfer unlikely. But that's a that's an intangible that Pete and I can't really measure. But Pete, if we also had that that physical type striker like Andy Carroll, who can play with his back to goal and hold it up, does that make John Swift much more of a goal threat, and maybe even Jed Wallace as well, and possibly Grady? Yeah, probably. I think ideally we'd want a striker that can hold it up, can win headers, can score goals with his head. But if we just had that, like with someone with Andy Carroll, then we'd lose the runs that Carlin Grant does make in behind. They're generally just short, sharp runs across the back of a defender. But it's a ball that we seem to be playing quite a lot and a run that Grant seems to be making quite a lot. And we do create chances in that way as well. So we'd probably lose that. Yeah, but it's, that it's less dangerous, Pete, when they're allowed to hack him down and it's not a penalty. Well, yeah, there is that as well, but that's just that's just what happens when you're playing in the championship and you have to have to um, settle for championship referees. Um, yeah, there is that. But I think we'd lose. That's why someone like Dara DK would be perfect because he he can offer both both options. Really, he can make the runs in behind. I think he's he's probably better at that than he actually is at winning headers. But he is definitely an aerial threat as well. So I feel like when Bruce is planning the planning the squad, planning the way that he wants to play this season. He was expecting Daryl DK to be spearheading the attack and, you know, being that threat that we can slide balls in behind, as well as, you know, bringing Jed Wallace in to, to pick him out with his crosses. So I do think that Daryl DK's injury will, has had a massive effect on, on our start to the season. And hopefully when he when he does come back fit, then we can keep him that way because I think he'll definitely have a massive impact. Moving on to what happened on Thursday... And but a bit of a continuation of that. Were you surprised at the types of business we were looking to do? Obviously, Onomer and Alzate are the two that that fell through, and we'll come on to talk about them and what exactly happened there in a moment. But we obviously went. We 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 said that Moat was let go, or Bruce said that Moat was let go because suddenly there was an urgent need for a striker after DK's injury, and that became a major, major priority. Now, I'm not ignoring the fact that Brandon Thomas Asante came in and he obviously did come on and play as a nine against um, uh, against Burnley and, of course, scored the goal. But nonetheless, to suggest that Brandon Thomas, Thomas Asante, who has only been playing as an out-and-out nine for a few months, really, at, at Salford, he, he's largely utilised in the more, as, a, as a wide forward before that, a bit like Grant, really. Um and also to suggest that a guy coming from League Two, 23 years old, who'd never played at a higher level than that, would be the solution to Daryl DK seems a little bit fanciful, if I'm if I'm perfectly honest. So to suggest that he was the one that was brought in with the Moat money, or that was the plan, I, I don't buy that. And then the only other player in the squad, other than the likes of, Ken Zahor, who, like I say, I just don't count as a footballer and hasn't been one for quite some time for us. And Reyes Cleary, who quite clearly Bruce does not think is ready, was Callum Robinson. And then we let him go. And the players we're trying to bring in are two midfielders. Now, I think they were both quality, quality additions. And I seriously mourn the fact that we didn't get those two deals over the line and I'm furious that we that we screwed that up. However, I do think it's a little bit strange, Pete, that we've we've had all summer and really all of last year 
other than the few minutes where we thought we had DK, we've had this problem of lacking a proper out and out number nine. We let Moat go saying that the, the reason that we're letting him go and we're shifting all our resources to get this number nine. And then on deadline day, we go after two midfielders. Were you surprised? Yeah, I was because Brandon Thomas Asante was brought in the day before, has played as a striker. Bruce seems to see him as a striker after bringing him, in, bringing him on and putting him up front and shifting Grant to the left. But I thought he'd play as a, as a kind of young player um, coming through, you know, get minutes off the bench, but definitely not be seen as Grant's number one backup. I thought we'd bring someone more senior, someone more senior into to challenge Grant and, and play as his competition or his backup rather than just a young and inexperienced at this level player that Thomas Santi is. So that did seem very strange to me. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long DK's supposedly out for now. Um, I'd guess another four or five weeks, but I really... I, Feel like yeah, the he... deaf thing is, it doesn't. It's probably not that far away. I mean, assuming, of course, we can get him back fit and he doesn't have any recurrence. Uh, we've 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 actually faffed about with this so long that that in actual fact, the the guy that we were initially trying to replace is probably not that far off fitness. Yeah, and that's why maybe Bruce didn't see the need to bring in another strike after bringing in Thomas Asante because then when DK's back, you've got DK Grant Asante. Um, and Reyes Cleary, if he Bruce starts to put him towards the first team, and Zahor apparently is back in the um, apparently back in the picture. Um, so with all of them, you if you did bring in another one, you you might feel like you're overloaded with strikers when everyone is fit. It's just whether we can have everyone fit at the same time. But I think we definitely needed midfielders. If you're looking at Pure central midfielders, the likes. I mean, we've got three. We've got Yakuzlu, Livermore, and, and Malumbi. Swift obviously plays a bit more advanced. So I'm not counting him there. But if one of them gets injured, then then we've not really got any other options on the bench. And well, and, and Yakuzlu's now our, our only backup at centre half, really, as well, isn't he? Yeah, I suppose he is because he, he had um, to go there against Burnley. <laughs> yeah, he did, and I'm not sure how long. Kim Bryan's meant to be out for, but we also haven't seen much of him, so I don't know. I mean, I heard Christmas. I don't know how accurate that is. Christmas, well, yeah. I mean, we're, we're short there as well then, aren't we? I imagine Martin Kelly's probably been brought in as cover for, for centre-back, to be honest, because... But he's got to be he's got to be two, three weeks away. I mean, the guy hasn't, the guy hasn't played really for over two years. Yeah, and has always been a, a right-back rather than a centre-back. But the fact that we've got Furlong and Gordon Hickman at right-back, you'd think that we don't need another player in right-back, but we do definitely need more cover at centre-back. But like you say, he's probably not ready for another two, three weeks. Um, so if we pick up another injury in, in centre-back, then that's another place that we're going to be we're going to be struggling for. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just going on to what actually happened. I mean, look, first of all, it's worth saying... Nobody really knows for sure. We have to pick bits and bob- bobs up from uh, from journalistic reports. And I don't expect Albion to come out and give us chapter and verse on uh, on this, although I, I do think the batten down the hatches approach, 
I feel like Gourlay hasn't faced any of this up. I, I really felt sorry for Steve Bruce after the Burnley game that he had to come out, front this up, when you could see the guy was biting his tongue. You could see he was furious at what had happened. And, I, you know, I'm not expecting Gourlay to go in front of uh, in front of people in the press and answer loads of questions, but at least some sort of a statement from him. He's going to have to answer questions when the Albion Assembly comes around anyway. I I, I, I do think, we, especially given that he gave it this big spiel about, I'm going to rebuild the connection with the fans. There's going to be better connection, communication with the fans, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm sorry. We, we all knew, we all knew there was two deals very much in the pipeline on transfer deadline day. There wasn't even a message from the club to say that's it for tonight. It, that came from, I saw it from Joe Chapman. I'm sure Elias Burke had it as well, another local journalist, that that's it. There's not going to be anything else from Albion tonight. Then nothing, get, we, we hear from Mike McGrath that these deals are being appealed, that, that, that they're not happening. Still nothing from the club. I, like I say, I've worked in communications at that very football club. So... And, and and I also appreciate that the people who work in communications have to do what those above them ask them to do. So I'm not having a go. At, I'm not having a go at them. They can't just go out on a whim and start telling fans what's going on. It comes ultimately from Gourlay. Gourlay will be the one telling the communications department what they can and can't say. And I also know the difficulties that some things have to stay under wraps. I appreciate that. Like I say, I've worked there. I know what it's like. But there comes a point where silence is deafening. And I felt the silence over Thursday and Friday was just utterly, utterly deafening. And I didn't, especially off the back of everything Gourlay had said a few months earlier about how that he was going to build a better connection with the fans. There was going to be more transparency, more visibility, I thought it was terrible, and I thought I thought that uh, I, I I thought he threw Steve Bruce, who's supposed to be his mate, to the Lions, and made him front up a situation that was not his fault. And sorry, Pete, I'll let you cut cut in and say your bit on what you think of all this in a second. But as I understand it, and as I say, there's been no clarification from the club on any of this, from from what I can see. But what I've picked up from bits and bobs from journalists as to what actually happened is that there was two very different situations. The Alzate one, I don't think was particularly our fault from what I can gather. I think uh, Brighton were far more focused on getting the Billy Gilmore deal done, which meant they were not terribly focused on Alzate. And basically, they've sent the paperwork through very, very late, which if we were a Premier League club would not be a problem because we could have put a deal sheet in and then we could have got an extension to have completed all the bits and bobs around it. However, we're not a Premier League club and the EFL have a very hard deadline of 11pm. 11pm is it. That's not the case in the Premier League. In the Premier League, you have to uh, submit a deal sheet. The deal sheet actually doesn't carry that much information. As I understand it, and, you know, not a club secretary or anything like that. But as I understand it, the deal sheet is pretty much there is an agreement between these two, uh, between the, the player and the club and the two clubs. We agree to, uh, you know, get all the bits and bobs across in a timely fashion. That's that's pretty. It's a commitment to do a deal effectively is what a deal sheet is. And then you can complete all the other 
malarkey around it in the extended time, which is either an hour or two hours. I'm not entirely sure in the Premier League. In the Championship, 11pm is the deadline. That is the deadline. There is no moving it. And everybody knows that. And as much as it's not fair that there's different rules for different leagues, that is the case. So the Alzate one, as I understand it, was largely down to Brighton not having any sort of a priority around getting that done and their focus being on getting Billy Gilmore, which they did through a deal sheet and then completed after the deadline. We weren't able to do that with Alzate because we're in a different division. The Josh Onema one, from what I understand, is very different. Josh Onema, as I am told by people that I trust, you know, not people within the club, I'd like to stress that, but people who know people and that I trust tell me and also Mike McGrath who seems very well informed as a journalist on this um who uh, says that the medical for Josh Onema was done at 4:30 p.m. that there was an agreement between the clubs everything was done the problem with Josh Onema came with errors in the paperwork which went across to Josh Onema's people now whether there was errors when the paperwork came across uh, from Fulham to Albion and then those errors were passed on to the uh, the agent I'm not entirely sure but nonetheless there should have been an enormous amount of time between Josh Onema completing the deal at 4:30 and from what I understand he's had everything done around the club he's had pictures I'm pretty sure there's a shirt hanging up with his squad number somewhere that, uh, uh, you know, everything, everything was done. Um, all the media commitments, I believe, were, were, were done and everything like that from uh, from what I'm told and from what Mike McGrath is reporting. And yet we didn't in the in the six and a half hours that existed between him completing his medical and him. and the the end of the deadline, we somehow managed to uh, not get all this paperwork completed correctly and across. Now, in both cases, I understand we didn't miss the deadline by by much. I, I don't think we missed it by a matter of minutes in both cases. And I think there's a bit of aghast about the fact that the EFL have stuck to their deadline. But I think that's naivety from us, that we think if the EFL move their deadline for one club, they have to move it for everybody. They have a hard cutoff point. Whatever you think about that, that is the case. 11 p.m. is the deadline. And if you are a second past 11 p.m., they don't care. You are past the deadline. And if they change that for one club, they have to change it for all the clubs. And they will end up with a load of backdated appeals from from clubs. So they're never going to move on it. So moaning about being two, three, four minutes late is pointless and it's naive. And I just think, Pete, that the Alzate one, I can almost forgive, but what I can't forgive is what happened with Onoma, I think is criminal to have got a, got a dead, a medical done at 4.30 PM and then not got the deal over the line is awful. I also think that the lack of communication, particularly from Gourlay, is awful, especially after the promises that he made to the fans about better communication and actually, you know, reopening those lines, more more transparency. I think what he's done over the last week is absolutely disgraceful in that in that sense because you can't make those promises and uh, when it's easy, and then as soon as anything gets difficult, completely renege on them and throw your manager under the bus to answer questions that he shouldn't be having to answer because getting those deals done was nothing to do with him, and then. 
I forgive the Alzate transfer. I really do, because from what I understand, I don't think it was really our fault. But there's two things on that one for me, Pete, is that one, at what at some point, you've got to have a contingency plan and you've got to be going, they're dragging their heels on this. This is an important deal for us, but it's not going to get done. Maybe we just move on to the next one. And the other thing is, why do you sanction Callum Robinson? If the deals aren't done, why do you sanction Callum Robinson and leave yourself even more short than you were before? I just think there's so many there's so many mistakes here, Pete, and it's I don't even know where to start with them. There's not a lot more I can add to that because you basically covered my thoughts pretty well. I mean, regarding Gorle, yeah, you said he wanted to be more open with the fans, more more communication, and that seemed like the perfect moment to to put that into practice because. I mean, we're desperately short, the squad's desperately thin and there were mistakes that happened that kind of led, well, yeah, that kind of led to the fact that the squad is that thin and you'd expect a bit more from him. Well, you'd expect something from him, not a bit more because we didn't get anything. Yeah, that's that's the issue, isn't it? And uh, I mean, do you agree with me as well that Bruce shouldn't be having to front that up? No, I mean, obviously he's going to get questions regardless because that's just what happens. have your pre-match interviews and your post-match interviews and it's a it's a big situation that's that's going to be questioned about but you'd expect the Gourlay to come out and say something beforehand and then Bruce can Bruce can just answer the same as what Gourlay said because ultimately I'd, I'd say it's more on Gourlay than it is Bruce you'd expect him to be dealing with the admin side and the, the transfers more than you'd expect the managers to be but yeah he's kind of like you say thrown him to the lines there and just to mention the planning as well, it's just, I mean, that's awful. The fact that you've let Robinson go before you're absolutely certain that you're bringing players in to replace him is, I mean, it's criminal. We, I imagine just looking at transfer fees, I know there's tons of other things that go into free transfers and wages, et cetera, et cetera. But just looking at transfer free fees, we've probably made a, a profit this summer um, selling Robinson and only spending money on, on Thomas Santa. Yeah, we definitely will have, so... Yeah, about 1.2 million, I would say. Yeah, which when you look at the depth of the squad, that's just, just. I mean, it's just a complete lack of planning, isn't it? The fact that we've actually had money come in and we've not been able to spend it, but we've only got, was it 15 or 16 fit senior players? Um, yeah, it's ridiculous and it's And you're so close as well. You know, you've got a manager who's trying, you know, he kept saying the words rebuild in pre-season. How's he supposed, how's he supposed to do a rebuild? with that kind of support. And that's what makes it even more frustrating is that we've mentioned it before, that the, the first, the starting 11, our best 11 isn't far away from automatic promotion quality. Um, I'd say if we could, if we could, obviously you can't, but if you could have that starting 11 for every game of the season, then we'd definitely be in the top six. And I think we'd be very close if we're not in the top two, but, to, to, to do that, though, we'd need the kind of look that Leicester had the year they won the league, wouldn't we? Yeah, obviously that's impossible, especially in the Championship with 46 games. Um, even just even without injuries, you've still got fatigue if you play on Saturdays and Wednesdays or whatever. Um, but I'm just emphasising the point of the quality of the starting eleven. but there's just no depth behind it. And it's, I mean, if we don't get promoted this year, then I think we're, it's going to be a very tough task in, in the following years. Um because of those, you know, we don't have any more parachute payments coming in. We're going to have to start thinning out the, the wages because of the lack of parachute payments. Lai seems to be wanting to take money out of the club. So it's just, it's basically the last 
the last chance really I think to to get that promotion that we we desperately need as a club and you think that the manager would get full support for that because it is the last chance to to even take a gamble on it but but, it, but I mean you could even say to a certain extent that he did have he did have a level of support because there was two players set to come in but it just seems like another promise that we had from Gourlay was that he was going to sort out the sporting structure the 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 behind the scenes structure of the football club was going to get people in who really knew what they were doing and blah 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 well I'm sorry but the competence around what went on on Thursday night has to be questioned wherever the errors have come from if there are pa- if there is paperwork getting sent around a transfer and it's taking six hours to sort out that has errors in it You've got to ask what's going on, really. You've got to beg that question. And and in the end, look, anyone can blame any underling that they want. I look, I've 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 managed a team, not a football team, I've managed a group a team of of, of individuals. And I know in the end that when mistakes are made, it comes back up to me because I'm the one who's who's supposed to be managing them. If there is mistakes being made in a transfer, ultimately the man who has to hold himself accountable for that is Ron Gourlay, because he's the man at the top of all this. Or Ian Pierce, but we'll come to him in a minute because I don't know what he does. That's another link back to Gourlay saying bringing in people that are really good at their jobs and know exactly what they're doing. All the players that we've looked at for the whole window seem to have links back to Bruce, um, either managed them or played it or managed against them. And just a lack of creativity there. But yeah, back to Gourlay. He, um, yeah, I mean, Bruce hasn't had support in terms of funding, obviously with the loans being taken out of the club. But then we were in to sign two players, presumably with the funds that have been created by moving Robinson out. And he's been let down by the by whatever's happened behind the scenes, the administration, the paperwork. Um, and he's been let down there. So all in all, he's he's not had a he's not having a, an easy run at given us a good shot of promotion because he's been let down by the owner taking the loans out he's been let down by Gourlay not getting the not getting the paperwork done making mistakes on the paperwork or obviously his team probably not him directly but like you say as the the leader of that team you've got to take responsibility there and being let down probably by the recruitment stuff as well not giving him a, a very good pool of players to well and not not giving him a very wide pool of players to to recruit from because we're only seem to be looking at domestic targets. Yeah, I mean we have to say all of this around, you know, what happened errors, paperwork, all this sort of thing. It is speculative, but it has to be because 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 genuinely nothing has ever has come out from the club to tell us what happened. Even Bruce said I'm not going into it after the game against against Burnley. And fair play, it shouldn't be for him to go into it. Last one on Gourlay and then uh, and, and then I want to have a go at Ian Pierce because, you know, uh, in for a penny in for a pound, eh, Pete? On Gourlay, one of the things that we got warned about by Reading fans, and we've had Jacob Hawley on the podcast twice, and he does not have a lot of lot of good things to say about Ron Gourlay from his time at the Royals, is that Gourlay likes to chuck money about and spend it in a bit of a frivolous fashion and doesn't really have any idea how to budget. Have we seen that a bit this summer? Because whilst... I am not questioning for a second. I'm not questioning for a second the quality that Swift and Wallace bring to our to our football club. The reality of the of the situation is that 
the, the budget was too low that Lie gave them. I uh, uh, and it, the, the loans going out is is absolutely disgusting. But the fact is that Gourlay was told a number. He was told an amount that he was allowed to spend this this summer. And I can't help feeling that he blew the vast majority of that on getting Swift and Wallace in and then left us incredibly short to do anything in any other areas. And actually, in the end, we've ended up having to trade more players out to bring less in because we're paying those two players probably fairly substantial sums of money. I'm not saying they're not worth it. They're both worth it. Wallace is just brilliant. And Swift, again, eight key passes against Burnley. When he's ticking, we're ticking. We've brought these two wonderful players in, but we haven't got a backup centre-half. We haven't got a backup central midfielder. I'm not sure the goalkeeper's up to it. We haven't got any cover at fullback, and we haven't got a number nine. Is it, again, a worry around Gourlay's budgetary ability? Yeah. Um, when Wallace and Swift were signed, I think everyone knows that they'll be on on top wages, probably some of the highest earners in the squad because of what they've done in past seasons and because they're a free agent who tend to cost more money um, because you're not paying that transfer fee. But at the start of the window, Gordo would have known, he would have known the budget. He'd have known what he'd got to spend um, for wages, for transfer fees, everything. He'd have known what the, what the pot was. And it was something that concerned me at the time slightly that we have signed these two excellent players that have proven that they can do it in the championship. But they're going to be signed on big wages and it's going to be expensive. I think that's before the um, news came out about the extra loans that lie taken out. But obviously when that news came out, it was even bigger worry because with what five, six million less to spend because there are in loans and we've spent a lot, well, presumably spending a lot of money on wages and sign on fees for two of the best championship players, which if you're looking to do a, a massive overhaul of the squad, you, the majority of the budget would have already been spent there. So there's there's not much mo- room to manoeuvre with, especially when there's quite a few players in the squad that you would obviously struggle to get any um, struggle to get any interest for to sell or to loan out. Do you think and- Gourlay's also, on that note, Pete, do you think Gourlay's been naive about who he, who, he, who he could move out? Did he think that maybe there might be takers for you, Zahors, Bartleys maybe, Livermores, people like this? Potentially, but I think that's just... Lack of research planning. Um, obviously, no one's going to take Zahor. You could, I could have told you that at the start of last season. Um, well, we offered him for free last year, and nobody took him. Well, exactly. So I don't, I don't know why he could possibly think that anyone would take him, especially with what he's reportedly earning and the fact that he's played about ten times for us and scored one goal that wasn't a penalty. But obviously, he's not going to sell. Um, Livermore, you're probably always going to struggle to move him on move him on because he's probably had he's probably on his last decent contract of his career and he's not going to want to give that up probably similar for Bartley and I, I well yeah it's naive if he think if he did think that he was going to be able to move them on and if not then it's just a lack of a lack of planning spending your the majority of your budget on two players at the start when you want to have a whole a whole shift up of the of the squad um after those two players were signed it was it was never going to be easy to to do that because the money's gone and we've not got much to many options to, to make much money. Obviously, we sold Robinson. I think that's probably, we sold him on the cheap, to be honest, for his quality. But, I mean, that's all the... Well, clubs know what your negotiating standpoint is, don't they? Also, there's not a lot of money in the Championship and there's not going to be any Premier League interest for him. So you, you're left to Championship clubs who probably don't have the, the money to spend on transfer fees of what he's probably valued at. So 
it's a difficult one there. And like you say, clubs know what clubs know that you need to move players on to sign players. So they then you know you kind of are weakened in your negotiations already. So yeah, I think there was a, I do feel like there was a lack of planning because squad depth is something that needed to be addressed, especially especially when you're loaning and selling players that were key players last season. You know, Mo and Robinson both gone out and left us with what 15 16 fit senior players that just to me points towards a lack of planning and whilst we're finishing off our chat about the um largely appalling running of half football club and uh, and the one man that I, I i'm going to reiterate this point and i've said it three or four times but the one man i do think who's doing doing a good job in amongst all of this is steve bruce so that i think i i think he's working minor miracles to have us as close as we are to actually being in contention, you know, we okay six draws, but those all those draws could so easily have been wins. And I, I, I think he's, I think he's doing a really good job in very, very difficult circumstances. Gourlay, I think, has let him down, and I think he's thrown into the Lions this week as well. And then, I mean, the one thing I defend Gourlay with is I don't agree with a lot of the decisions he's making, but at least he's making some, at least he's doing something. I don't know what Ian Pierce does, Pete, and I'd love for somebody to be able to tell me because you touched on it before. You look at the players that we're, that we're either bringing in or being linked with this summer and Swift and Wallace, I mean, anybody could have told you go and buy Swift and Wallace. We said Swift and Wallace before, uh, before, the, before the, uh, the end of last season let alone anything else. And neither of us are highly paid recruitment people. We wish we were. But, uh, I mean, we we outlined them as the two Albion should go after. We said Swift, Wallace, Rothwell. So it wasn't difficult. Those two weren't difficult. Yukoslu, they, they all know because we've seen him before. And then you look at the others that we've gone after. Onoma, Bruce knows from having had him on loan twice. We've gone after Keenan Davis, um, who again Bruce knows from having had him on before. Um, you know, and then and then on top of that, I mean Liam Delap. It's not difficult to pick out one of the most talented youngsters in this in in this country. But also, I, I feel like we are reacting off other clubs' business. Keenan Davis, we went after after Watford went after him. We went after. Yeah, Liam Delap after Stoke went after him. Then I felt like we were looking over Birmingham's shoulder, copying their exam paper for the whole of last week. Like we at first we nicked Brandon Thomas Asante off them, and then when they go for Chong, they uh, we we go for him. And again, I'm not got this from like 100% rock solid sources, but from what I'm told, we offered from what I hear, we offered Tahith Chong more money than Birmingham were offering him. But we were so late to the party that Chong's response was that he had made a promise to Birmingham City and he was a man of his word and he was going to stick by it. Now, like I say, that's not rock solid. I haven't got that on, like, irrefutable evidence, not got it from Teeth Chong's mouth or, or, or anything like that. So it could be wrong. But it did feel like we were we were a club reacting off other clubs' business. And as I say... I don't see Ian Pierce's fingerprints on any of this. We're not we're, we're not looking for players abroad. We're not doing really good scouting of the lower leagues. As I say, Brandon Thomas Asante, we suddenly react when other clubs activate his release clause. Not it's not it doesn't seem to be off our scouting. I don't know what Ian Pierce is doing. I don't know where his fingerprints are on any of our business. Bruce's comment, which he massively backpedaled on about the not being a list, I believe. 
I believe there wasn't a list. Just purely and simply, Pete, I don't know what the bloke does. I mean, if we're short of money, get rid of him because I feel like he's robbing a living. It was just a real lack of creativity, wasn't it? Because you just, yeah, you just have to look at the players that we're linked with. I mean, on deadline day, we're linked with a striker that scored against in preseason. It's just, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know what what he what Ian Pearce seems to do because every player you can trace back to either somebody that we, has played for us before somebody who was a really obvious transfer uh, championship player, somebody Bruce knows, somebody Gourlay knows, or, uh, or as you say, somebody where we've played against them in the very recent past, or somebody where we've seen another club do uh, go for someone and we've got involved. None of that is Ian Pierce, is it? No. And I'd be surprised if we're actually linked with anyone that plays football outside of, outside of England, apart from Yakuza, obviously, but he, formerly played for us so that's just kind of an obvious one apart from that I'd, and the um Selka Selka yeah his name escaped me but Selka who obviously scored against some preseason apart from those two I'd be surprised if we were linked with anyone outside of outside of England and I'd be surprised well um, I was going to say I'd be surprised if they're on our shortlist but I just remembered that that shortlist never actually existed so exist, mate. no list no pen no paper no so yeah I mean you I do wonder if... You do more scouting than Ian Pierce does, mate. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take too much to... Um, if you think about what it costs for a football club to employ a, a good recruitment department, whether that be um, well, probably a mixture of scouts, um, data recruitment analysts, it's, I mean, it's a tiny cost compared to what you're risking on signing footballers. Um, you spend millions on them. And if they don't work out, if they're not a good fit, if they're not the player that you thought they were, then it could be millions wasted rather than spending you can probably have a, a good recruitment department for much much less than a, a million a season um which to be honest in the long long run probably probably pays off by a lot because you're making smart transfers identifying players players that maybe you wouldn't spot otherwise um and getting players that are a good value for money and, and more likely to be successful at your club but well also it, he, he had a list of people who were good enough because he had all the people that Dowling let go. I don't understand why Gourlay didn't just go cap in hand to each and every one of those people who were so fantastic through like the Ashworth years and people like that, all the people that got marginalised under Pulis because he obviously wanted to do his own business and then got ousted by Dowling because he wanted to bring his own people in. And why didn't just go cap in hand to them and go, look, it's a new regime now, guys. It's a, it's a completely new setup. It, it, the past is the past, you know, come back and we'll, we'll get the band back together because it was successful. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just long-term planning because if you do have good people doing those jobs, relatively for a football club, they cost, they cost nothing because, you know, the amount of money that, as I've already said, football clubs spend on transfers, employing a good recruitment team is, is nothing compared to that. So it'd be so much better off if you think about it long-term, get the right people into the job, start picking up some you know, some, some players, scouting some players that maybe you wouldn't otherwise, but are, are much better value for money, much better fits to the club. You know, it just completely reduces the margin for error of the transfers that you are making because you probably know more about them. You trust the people that are scouting them, that are picking them up, but you trust them more. And you're probably spending less on them because you've got a much wider reach. You know, you're not just looking at players that have played in England or have played under the manager already. 
you know, you can look all across the world, Europe, South America, uh, North America, wherever you can look all over the place. And it's, it's just about that long-term planning and investing a little bit at the start to, you know, you reap the rewards in years to come because you just operate so much better in the transfer market. I mean, you only have to look at Brighton, some of the players that they sign. Um, obviously Ashworth was there and would have done, would have brought in a great recruitment team. Um, and he's obviously excellent at his job, but you know, they're signing players that you probably haven't heard of, but are now playing regularly in the Premier League and are excellent, excellent value for money and then selling them on as well. Um, and making profit from that. So if you get it right and plan long term, then it pays for itself in the future. You just have to have that long term planning and that, yeah, get it right, get the right people into the jobs. But I mean, hopefully we can go all starts to, to, to do that and, and work towards what his promises were. But at the minute, I'm skeptical. I, I was going to say, has he broken the trust this week? Because he, he promised more communication with the fans. We hasn't communicated with them at all this week. He's uh, pr- uh, promised more openness and honesty. Well, there hasn't been any this week. Um, he promised to sort the sporting structure out. Well, it can't even do a simple transfer at this stage and we haven't got a list as Bruce has said in recent weeks. So the recruitment department isn't sorted. So it hasn't done that. And again, I mean, I don't want to take, I I don't like taking videos that I see on Twitter as gospel because there may be more context to them, but it also worries me that I saw a video of um, stewards dragging down and, uh, and, and ripping up a lie out banner as well in the stands um, and again, if you th- if you're talking about having a relationship with the fans, that involves allowing the fans an opportunity to express their voice and express their opinion. It was being held. I, I know for a fact it was being held up at the end of the game because you can see from the picture that the players are over applauding the fans, and uh, so they can't be accused of mo- blocking anybody's view. Now, again, like I say, I'm not taking that as gospel, but once it's just another worrying thing. And then you've got the whole thing around the loans where. He had the opportunity, he was asked the direct question at the Albion Assembly about whether or not there was anything to be looking out for in the accounts and he said no and then uh, and then like a week later we see see the accounts and there's these loans have gone out i don't I don't feel like we can trust anything he says at this point Pete no, he seems to be happy to protect his his employer um happy to protect lie in the obviously that banner um the accounts um you know, it seems to be that that's his main goal at the minute, just protect lie. And if he does that, I imagine he's protecting his own job, which seems to be what his, his main interest is rather than um, following up, following through with what his promises were of more openness and uh, communication with supporters and kind of improving the um, improving the, the makeup of the club in terms of this, the non-playing staff. Um, he did bring in the, was it the head, head of sports science, was it from... Former Manchester United um, guy yeah. is meant to be very good. Sorry, I don't know his name, but I mean that that was a promising step. But apart from that, we we haven't seemed to have seen many other steps towards what his promises were. And just to finish off, I mean, we, 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 this is a bit of a bumper pod uh, today, but the, there was just so much from the last week to talk about that. The, you know, to be honest, we had to do an extended episode, really. Um, and the last thing to talk about is obviously due to our failings in the in, in the transfer market and on transfer deadline day, we are shopping 
in the loan market, Pete. And you and I have been having a bit of a scan through um, the the free agents. I think both of us have been using Transfer Markt's uh, list of, of free agents. So apologies if any of these at either time of publishing have moved on to other clubs or that, that haven't been updated. We, we're taking tra- what Transfer Mark tell us as pretty much as gospel um, at this point, because, well, you know, we, we're not professional recruitment people. We have, we don't have other, other means of, uh, of, of finding these things out as to where players are in their negotiations with clubs. But I think we've both taken it as forwards and midfielders is probably where we're likely to be looking. So we've kind of ignored the defensive players that are, that, that are on, uh, on free transfers, Pete. And interestingly, when we compared notes off air, I think we've both come up with largely the same the same names uh, here, haven't, uh, haven't we? I, I think there's four main players, I think, that have jumped out at both of us. Now, two of them are fairly obvious. Fabian Delph and Andy Carroll would seem the most obvious ones. As I mentioned before, Andy Carroll is something of an issue if there has been a falling out between him and Bruce when he departed. Certainly some of Bruce's comments around when you've got Carroll in the side, you he, he dictates your style of play does not seem conducive to Andy Carroll coming back. Fabian Delph is a fairly obvious one, but a couple of the other names that have jumped out at both you and me, because we did these lists independently of each other and then compared notes off air before we started recording. And we both got um, Labiad, the former um, Ajax uh, Moroccan midfielder. Apologies to any of our our Moroccan listeners if I've pronounced his, his surname incorrectly there. Um, who looks at a really, really exciting talent. And also Tom Rogic, uh, who is without a club after leaving Celtic, both 29, Pete. Just because I know you really like the data on both those players. Just tell us why you like them. Yeah, so like I said, I was looking through Transfer Markt and, and just kind of looking at the data at any potential players. And, you know, Laviad seems to be just very impactful in the final third. Um, I think he's is Expected goals in open play was about 0.37, which is, you know, that's very high for an attacking midfielder. His expected assist was high as well. Passes into the penalty area, all very impressive. Doesn't do much dribbling, um, but that's not really a massive issue. If you think about Swift, he doesn't do a ton of it either, but basically very, very strong numbers. Um, and I think it would be, it'd be a good competition to Swift, which would give us another option, give us a bit more cover uh, and probably push push Swift on a bit as well if he knows he's got direct competition behind him um, and Rogic was again uh, he seemed to be a bit more well-rounded but excellent all-round um, you know goal threat creative he's progressive and his passing and he carries the ball as well you know he's a good dribbler so he, seem, he seems like he'd be absolutely excellent I think you got to take into consideration that he played for Celtic so which might inflate his numbers because of, you know, very dominant, lots of possession, obviously going to be going to threaten the opposition, going to get chances and stuff. But all in all, his numbers were, you know, very well-rounded and very impressive. I think both of them were. Versatile as well, isn't he, Rogic? I mean, he he is primarily a midfielder, but he, he has been deployed as a centre-forward. Yeah, and he seems to be he seems to be able to play deeper in midfield in, you know, the kind of role that Malumbi was playing as well as, as the 10, as a cover or competition for for Swift and like you say potentially as the as the leading man as well so versatile is always a good thing when you've got a a very thin squad but the both of those two I'd be I'd be very happy with we could bring one or even both of them I can't imagine we would get both of them but even just one of them I'd be I'd be very happy with they both both would look you really take Rogic over Delph 
Yeah, I think so. Um, I think for a couple of reasons, really, uh, because Delph seems to be very much an eight or whatever you want to call it, basically the role that Mullumby's playing. You know, he'll, he'll move the ball forward well, he'll, he'll pass the ball around, he'll do that well. He won't offer an awful, awful much more, awful lot more than that. Um, pretty aggressive defensively. Probably, I mean, so is Mullumby. You see him pressing a lot, Delph's experience, but I mean, ideally we want to be getting the average age of the squad down if if not keeping it the same definitely not upping it and Delph's 32 probably wants decent wages and he, he'd probably want at least a two-year deal which is what worries me um yeah because both the ones we picked out are 29 aren't they yeah so it gives them a few more years to I mean you offer them a you probably look at offering them even a three-year deal which probably makes it a bit more makes them a bit more interested and and protects us a bit more because if you're off, yeah, you don't really want Delph signed on until he's 34. Like I say, we've, we've got an aging squad at the minute, and the last thing we need is more players signed on in the middle in in the mid 30s. So yeah, for for that reason, and because I think Rogic is more well-rounded than than Delph and can play in a great variety of positions, I'd definitely take Rogic over Delph. Just to finish off on this, Pete, because we went through this and looked at looked at midfielders. I mean, I'd wrote a few wingers down as well. Um, which the options aren't aren't amazing, and I'm not sure we'd go for a winger anyway because I'm not sure we need it. Um, there is there is is Chiedo, the former Brighton player, but he's had an awful lot of injuries, um, and I don't know how fit he is at the moment. Um, Christian Atsu, the former Chelsea player, would be maybe one who'd be a little bit interesting. Sammy Amiobi. I mean, uh, I, I said to you off air. I, in in a normal market, I wouldn't touch Sammy Amiobi with a sixty foot pole. Um, but unfortunately, we, we find ourselves fishing in a very very small pond. Um, you know, he might be something that somebody that you could throw on who would be a bit of a a wild card for fifteen minutes at the end of games. But I mean, he's not one that I would get particularly enthusiastic about. And equally, you know, there's Tarapt in there, in there who just got released released by Benfica, but also. I don't see that. Um, first of all, I don't see him going to a championship club. I, I'd be surprised if he didn't have a club lined up already. Because why would he have agreed to a payoff on deadline day with Benfica if he didn't already have a deal lined up? Um, but also, he's another one. Mercurial talent can be a bit difficult around the dressing room, by all accounts, hard to get the best out of. And one thing we do seem to have at the moment is a pretty good team spirit and a group of lads pulling together and I'm not sure I'd risk that by bringing in I mean there's Tarap there's Hatton Ben Arthur also on, on on a free not that I think either of these players would come you also got to beg the question would you would you risk the the dressing room dynamic for somebody who is known to be a little bit a little bit of a problem but just worth saying we've gone through a lot of midfielders there there really wasn't any center forward options was there I mean once you got beyond Andy Carroll I mean but then once you get beyond that I mean genuinely you look at looking and you're thinking well as Hal Hal says he's still not retired uh, so maybe you consider Hal Robson Connick there's really not any other options I mean Mate Vidra is a good player but he's uh, but he's injured apparently till the new year so uh, you know I mean I'm not sure we'd want a centre forward anyway because Bruce didn't want one at the end of the transfer window so why does he suddenly want one now but if he does want one, I don't. I think there is. I think there's options in in midfield to improve the midfield in the free market, in the free agent market. I don't think the options are there up front unless you go and get Carroll. Really, no, there's it's 
very limited there. I thought that as well. Um, and it, I mean, it's even more difficult now than it would have been a few years back because of the, the work permits that players have to have. So you can't, there's not many European based players that you can actually bring in because clubs have, you know, when they've let them go, they've let them go because they don't really want them. So they haven't played much in the season before that. So they, they struggle to get the work permit. Um, hence why we mentioned Andy Carroll, Mate Vidra and Harrobs and Kano. But I think Carroll would, I think he'd get chances. He'd score goals with Wallace's crosses. He wouldn't be able to, he'd take a bit away from what Grant does. Obviously he's not going to make the runs that Grant does. Um, I think he would be a good option, but you mentioned that it, it might be difficult after the way that he left. Um, how Robson Carno? I think that's always a risk with a player that hasn't played for was it a year, two years now, just one year. Um, yeah, I mean it's well, it's 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 a year it's a year and a bit, isn't it? Really. Um, I mean the thing the the thing is on the face of it, if Hal was fully fit, he'd be perfect for this team, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think he'd definitely be a good option. You know, he, we saw him in that championship season under Pereira making the runs in behind, and we saw him finish well there, and he he holds the ball up well as well. So. If we could have Howard Robson Carno two or three years ago in the squad, then I think he'd be probably a first choice striker. But it's whether he's still that same player, still got that same ability, still got the, the desire to to play football. The fact that he's taken a a complete year out whilst he's still apparently fully fit. Well, and also he said some stuff about lie when he left, didn't he? That the the the, the, the he, when he spoke to Ken about the project, that it wasn't a project that appealed to him. So again after what's happened, it could be difficult from that point of view as well. Yeah, so we're only narrowing down our, our pool of players that we can even even look at. Um, I think the club are going to have to be creative to bring in, to bring in, not players, sorry, free transfers now. Um, and it's, I mean, creativity isn't something that we've really had in the, the recruitment department over the last year or two. So we'll see what happens. We shall indeed. And we shall leave it there for today because as I say, it's been a bit of a bumper one, but with so much to talk around the mess that occurred on transfer deadline day we just we we just had to give it the the coverage that it deserves because it needed an awful lot of talking about but that's all for uh, from us for this week we will of course be back after the uh, Coventry City game, assuming, of course, we play it at Coventry City and that we're not all taking a lovely trip to Burton Albion or anything like that. Um, but we will be back after that game and hopefully we'll finally have a positive away re- uh, result to talk about. Until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with the McNuggets share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.